This week's portion comes from Barashit, Genesis, the 44th chapter. And this is Pasha Vayegesh. Vayegesh is right smack in the middle of the great saga of Joseph, Joseph and his brothers. <clears throat> Over the last couple of weeks, we haven't had um, a Torah class because of celebrations of Hanukkah, etc. And so many of you guys will have had to catch up with the reading, but I'll sort of give a, a what do you call a brief introduction. Uh, Mechetz, which is the last portion, uh, and the portion before that is about Joseph's brothers who conspire to get rid of him. Actually, one of them want, wants to do away with him. Now, let's look at the genesis of the conflict between Joseph and Yehuda, Judah, right? The conflict between Judah and Joseph starts over what issue? Do we remember what issue it is? Do we know? Remember? Is he dreaming he's better? It's the dream, but it starts yeah. a little bit before that because it says that uh, that Yaakov loved right. Joseph. They, yeah, he did. And he gave him a coat, of, many many a coat of many colors. And you'll have to remember, uh, who. first of all, who was the eldest son of Yaakov? Reuben. Reuben. Reuben had, and had been displaced because he had moved his father's bed. He had actually intervened into his into his personal relationship, and so Reuben had lost his sort of first place as the head of the family. And then we have Simeon and Levi, who lose their place because of the destruction that they brought upon um, uh, the, the inhabitants of Shechem, right? And um, so now, all of a sudden, we see you can come on in. That's fine. All of a sudden, we see that um, Joseph is being elevated to what appears in the eyes of, of Judah and Levi and Simeon that all of a sudden, is Joseph now going to be considered part of the head of the family? And you can see where this is really causing some tension. Now, when we talk about the head of the family, what... What really are we talking about? We're talking about covenant responsibility. We're talking about inheritance. We're talking about being able to call the shots for the whole family. And anybody knows uh, sibling rival, ri rivalry well enough would know that you, if the first thing that you want to do as a parent, if you want to cause problems, is begin to favor the youngest child or the middle child the middle child never gets the favor, I don't know why. But favor the youngest child and ingratiate them and give them position and give them abilities that you don't give the others and you immediately start conflict. So the conflict between Judah and uh, Joseph starts with Yaakov's treatment of his son Joseph. But in reality, we remember the words of Rav Cook and, and Rav... Um, Greenbaum, who talks about the, the very beginning of this, starts back with Laban. It starts as early as Laban. You think, well, how can it start it that far back, all the way back to Laban? If you'll remember, Laban is wanting to upset the sort of natural progression of the great family that is going to come from the loins of Joseph. And what does he do? Joseph wants to marry who first? 
Rachel. Rachel. He loved Rachel. Huh? Jacob. What did I say? Joseph. Joseph. Jacob. I'm sorry. Yeah. Jacob. Jacob wanted to marry Rachel. He loved her, but there was a little switcheroo. He wants to interrupt the whole process. And he's hoping, Laban is hoping that he can interject some level of family dysfunction right off the bat to keep from the great prophecy being fulfilled and the great inheritance of the people of Avraham into the land. And you would think, well, you know, how, how in the world would he know this? The issue is this, is uh, the sages have talked about how from the time of Noah and Shem, how Shem began to teach the great traditions of oral law and oral Torah to the people. To include, he taught the oral Torah to Avraham and to, to Yaakov. And so in, embedded within that was also the understanding of the covenant that God had made with Abraham. And very clearly they understood that there was going to be this covenant. And when you talk about covenant and possession of a great land and great promise of prosperity and wealth, anybody in the system, if you're a son, you want to make sure that you're on top of the heap, not on the bottom of the heap, right? And so here by the time Yaakov comes along and has these 12 sons, there is a bit of jockeying for position. And we even saw it first with the wives, right? The wives, then you have, you have uh, Rachel, Leah, Bilcha, and Zelpa. Mm -hmm. uh, they all, you know, having some are able to bear many children, one is not bearing enough. And you just, you just see sort of the shifting sort of taking place in the family. That is the ripple. That is like the pebble in the pond. And it ends up rippling to the day that Joseph is thrown in the well. And later we understand that they sell him to uh, the Ishmaelites for tra uh, trade him as a slave. He goes to Egypt. Potiphar there picks him. He ends up the head of Potiphar's household. As the head of Potiphar's household, he is seduced by Potiphar's wife. She cannot resist this young, strapping, mm -hmm. strong man, very intelligent, can read, can understand Egyptian language, can understand his Hebrew, can even understand other languages of the, of the Canaanite people, and he's a, he's a huge asset. She accuses him of sexual assault. He, of course, is thrown in prison. There he languishes in prison for a few years. He is in prison with a... Uh, the cupbearer for Pharaoh and the breadmaker. And there the cupbearer and the breadmaker recognize his prophetic abilities because he interprets a dream that they have. Now, the, this whole interpretation of a dream ends up affecting uh, the outcome of the whole nation. Because when it was time for, for the great magi or the great sages of Egyptian, uh, what do you call it, religion, to interpret the Pharaoh's dream, they couldn't do it. Couldn't do interpret the dream, so they bring Yosef out of prison. Yosef tells them, this is what's going to happen. You're going to have some great years, and you're going to have some famine. Seven and seven. And in this time period that you have this famine, or you have the great years, or the, the plenty years, then we need to save upwards to 20% of the uh, gross 
yield of grain needs to go to the to the government and there that that uh, grain is put into great bins and we would save the country come on in make yourself comfortable please and so uh, Joseph is is now, we're now into the third the third year of the famine I think we're in the third year of the famine here in Vallejes. Uh third year of the famine Joseph's brothers show up all of a sudden he recognizes the motley crew he has them detained and in the story uh, that takes place before this he tests them how does he test them do you remember the test that he provides what's that speak up I can't remember which one. what were the tests first of all he said he accused them of being spies Right. Right? To spy out the land. And of course, the brothers realize how ludicrous this is because why would a man send 10 of his sons to go spy out the land when if his sons are captured, he has no more family? Mm -hmm. So the whole point is how are you going to conquer all Egypt with 10, 10 sons that are spying out the land? So he sends the 10, 10, the 10 uh, his brothers are accused of being spies and they throw them in prison. Well, they end up working a deal to get some crops but he keeps asking some very poignant questions. What were the questions? Do you have a father? Is he alive? Do you have any more brothers? Who are your brothers? Now, can you imagine going to Academy to buy you some camping equipment? And the clerk keeps asking you these very personal questions like, do you have a mother? Do you have brothers and sisters? Are they still alive? Do they live here? You'd be thinking, this is awful personal. Why are you asking me these kinds of questions? They never, it never dawns on them that Yosef is their brother. Why? He looks like an Egyptian. Exactly. Shaved head. Shaved head, makeup. He speaks the Egyptian language perfectly. He never lets on that he understands Hebrew. And so his brothers are completely, they're in the dark. They have no clue. Yes, Miss Betty. The, the text says that he became a Nakar to them. Right. Did you already say that? No, 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 please. Okay. Okay. A Nakar, go ahead. Well, um, like an idolater. Right. Mm -hmm. So he became as an idolater. Correct. And so they totally didn't recognize him. Correct. So they had no idea, as far as they were concerned, he was an idolater. Correct. And uh, we'll see in this text here as we start, uh, Judah says, you are, if I touch you, you're as if I'm touching Pharaoh. Right? The same thing. I mean, that's how, how powerful the image of Joseph was to these brethren. So it's verse 18 of Bereshit, or Genesis 44. <clears throat> Yehuda came to him and said to him, Please, my Lord, let your servant speak a word now before my Lord. Do not let your anger be aroused against your servant for you are the equal of Pharaoh one translation says that it's actually in the Aramaic it's sort of turned or turned around a bit but he's it's as if he is saying uh, so as you so is Pharaoh mm -hmm. so no differentiation between them when he considers he's talking to right. to Joseph he's talking to Pharaoh he says my Lord asked his servants saying now this is Judah 
Now, though we don't hear Jacob actually ask this question, obviously he asked because he's, Judah is now going to answer the questions. He says, My Lord asked his servant, saying, Do you have a father or a brother? We said to my Lord, We have an old father, and there is a young child of his old age. His brother is dead. Now, do you think, is he lying? Does he think they're dead? Think Joseph is dead? What do you think? It's a very good possibility. It's a very good possibility. I think they've been telling the lie for so long. They believe it, absolutely. Right. Now, the reason why it's important to pay attention to this text is this. Joseph is prophetically, we're going to see, a, what do you call it, telltale signs of the age of Mashiach, the age of Messiah. And the telltale signs that are going to be here is that the ten tribes, the ten northern tribes that went in, in Dispora, that have, have, were exiled into the nations, for all intents and purposes, Judah has, or the Jews, have assumed the ten northern tribes are what? Yeah. They're, they're gone. Like, they're, they're dead. Idolatry. It's they're an idolatry. Gone. It's gone. They're um, idolaters. Correct. They're nechar. Correct. They're nechar. And you remember the text we read last week in our class? What was b'nei hanechar? A b'nei hanechar in 56, Isaiah 56, the prophet says that a b'nei hanechar, or a stranger, an idolater that observed the Shavos, and, get, get, and guards the Sabbath and pleases Hashem with their whole heart that he will have a place with Judah. It's a beautiful text. And we're going to actually read some more tonight. We're going to go into the Haftarah and we'll discover some of that as well. So just remember as we go into this, you're going to see these connections. So it's easy to get buried in the story, but I think that you guys have heard this story long enough that we can kind of go to a, another another place. So he says to him, uh, He's left alone. His mother and his father loves him. Then you said to your servant, Bring him down to me that I might set my eye on him. Now, the term set my eye on him is a very common term we use here. Uh, Will you keep an eye on my child here for me? Will you keep an eye on this for me? That's what he means. So he said, Bring him down. I'll take care of him. I'll reassure that nothing will go wrong. And he said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father. If he leaves his father, he would die. Mm -hmm. You said to your servants, if your youngest brother does not come down with you, you will never see my face again. It happened that when he went up to your servants, my father, he told them the words of my Lord. Our father said, return, purchase some grain for us. And he said, we cannot go down. We will go down only if our youngest brother is with us. For if... We cannot see the face of the man, uh, of the man. If our youngest brother is not with us, your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me too. One has left me, and I said that he was surely killed. I have not seen him since. If you lead also, this is this one from me, and death befalls him, you will bring down my gray hairs to grief unto hell or Sheol. Therefore, when I returned to your servant, my father and the boy was not with us, and his life being, a dear, being as dear to him on his own, 
when he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. Your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, in grief to Sheol, or hell, or Gehenna. Your servant has pledged himself for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not return to him, I will be uh, sinning to my father forever. Now let your servant now remain as a slave to my Lord instead of the boy. So what is Judah doing now? He's negotiating. Take me instead. Mm -hmm. Why do you think this is significant? Something is happening in the redemptive level with Judah and and Joseph. Mm -hmm. The last time he knew Judah was hearing his words fall on deaf ears as he lay in the bottom of the pit crying to his brothers to help him. The last time he knew Judah, Judah was conspiring with the rest of them to put him away. Something has shifted. Something shifted and Judah is now taking this intense responsibility for Benjamin. Because if we know that, that it seems that after Joseph leaves, Benjamin is now treated like Joseph. He's the favorite of, of his father, of his father Yaakov. And so something has shifted, and Judah is saying, I can't do this to my father. So clearly we see that the 22 years that they have been away, they have also matured, and they've also become people of responsibility. Now, let's look quickly into the prophetic. Can we do that? There are two, there are two levels being identified here. Judah represents the, the adherence and duty to Hashem. Mm-hmm. Commitment to God. Why? Let's look at this for just a moment. Why did Judah not want to give up his position of authority in his household? Because he, even though he had brought down to a lower level, recognized that somebody has to take the responsibility to adhere to pleasing God with all their heart and pleasing their father. Does that make sense? So Judah represents those, and still to this day represents Judah, the Jews, who have a very strong commitment to their duty and fidelity to serve God with their whole heart. If Judah represents that, what does Joseph represent? Jo- yeah, Jude, uh, Joseph represents those who feel like that I should be out in the field. I should be in the nations. I should be Abraham. Abraham's the example. Abraham lived amongst the people. Shem lived amongst the people. Brought Torah to the people. He wasn't afraid of getting dirty. But you realize those are such juxtaposed positions that the only thing that can rectify those is the coming of Mashiach. That's the only thing that's going to rectify that. And I do believe that we're in the age of Mashiach now, in which we're seeing the light being shined on that. We see this whole concept. 20 years ago, the idea of having rabbinical input into a community of non-Jewish people who have committed themselves to Torah and to try to define it and to see what it means and that non-Jewish community, B'nai Noach, Ger Toshav, whatever you don't call it, they begin to 
listen to the advice of Judah. Listen to the advice of, of, of the Jews. And in by doing that, we are somehow bringing about tukun alam, a repair of the fabric of creation itself. The, the idea that, that Judah is being challenged to identify himself with someone he thinks is Nechar is very, very powerful. Think about it. Judah has learned its lesson over the centuries to have nothing to do with idolatry. I was explaining to someone today who had asked about why does not why doesn't Jewish people why don't you study uh, um, and try to understand Christianity and Jesus? And when I explained to the person that to do that means to deny the Creator of the universe his authority in their life and to accept idolatry, it was shocking to the person because they've never thought of it that way. And so think about it. Here, these young, uh, these young men, these men, are now having to grovel before this nechar, this idolater, in their mind. You understand? And the whole time, they have no idea that he is a circumcised son of his father. Their brothers has no idea. Why can they not conceive it? They look Egyptian, right? So what happens when B'nai Noach and Gertoshav comes to the Jewish people and say, I love you, we are together, and they think, no, we're not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's scary. You're a pagan, mm-hmm. correct? But what they're realizing is we're living in a time now in which Hashem is unveiling and opening up the eyes of all of us. And we are living in the very beginning stages of the final redemption. And to me, absolutely mind-blowing, so encouraging, and so exciting. So, so the whole idea is he says that, he says in verse 34, for, for now, for how can I return to my father unless the boy is with me? Least I see the disaster that will befall my father. This part of the story is so powerful to me. It's emotional. Joseph can no longer control himself. Why? Is he scared he's going to lose Benjamin? He's scared the brothers are going to go back and never come back? No. He realized this is the time. This is mm-hmm. the time. Can't control himself. Before all he stood before him, he cried out, Take all the people from my presence. Now, who are all of the people? The all the Egyptians. Yeah. Get them out of the room. So no person stayed with him with, when Joseph revealed himself to his brothers. He wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the people of Pharaoh's house heard it. We've heard in all types of literature about the great sound of the shofar that will blast when King Mashiach comes. And the idea is this, is in the same way the Egyptians heard the cry of Joseph, Mm. so will all the pagans and the people of the nations 
hear the great sound, the cry of the king coming to usher in the final redemption. The great revealing. There will be no doubt. Someone read to me next what happens. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. <clears throat> is my father still alive? Stop right there. What does he say? I'm Joseph. Is my father still alive? How many times have he asked him that? Now he's saying, okay, the jig is up. <laughs> this is who I am. Is my father really alive? He's so beside himself. Go ahead. But his brothers couldn't answer him because they were left disconcerted before him. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me if you please. And they came close. And he said, I am Joseph, your brother. It is me whom you sold into Egypt. And now be not distressed, nor reproach yourselves for having sold me here, for it was to be a provider that God sent me ahead of you. Okay, stop right there. So how did they figure out that Joseph was their brother? He was circumcised. Mm -hmm. How will... This is going to be a powerful thought. Yeah, I know what you're thinking. But how will For the Gare be identified and the ten northern tribes identified once again? Could be circumcision of the flesh. The most amazing thing will be the circumcision of the heart. Of the heart. Mm -hmm. Something is going to be changed. Something is going to be different. Joseph unveiled himself and says, see, circumcised but maybe it would be an unveiling maybe of the, the spiritualness I don't know what is shocking some of the rabbis right now that gears are coming forward right do you see what I mean right it's like they're noticing and they're not asking for a physical right change, circumcision. but they're, they're noticing a spiritual they're no absolutely they're no noticing a spiritual circumcision is taking place and a mm -hmm. commitment to Torah Correct. yeah absolutely so he reveals himself to his brothers and then it says, read on. For this has been two of the hunger years in the midst of the land, and there are yet five years in which there shall be neither plowing nor harvest. Thus God has sent me ahead of you to ensure your survival in the land and to sustain you for a momentous deliverance. And now it was not you who sent me here, but God. <clears throat> He's made me father to Pharaoh, master of his entire household, and ruler throughout the entire land of Egypt. Hurry, go up to my father and say to him, so said your son Joseph, God has made me master of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not delay. You will reside in the land of Goshen and you will be near to me. You, your sons, your grandchildren, your flock and your cattle, all that is yours, and I will provide for you there. For there will be five more years of famine so you do not become destitute, you, your household, and all that is yours. Okay, let's stop right there. What is the secret to the restoration of, of uh, what do you call it, broken relationship? Secret is identifying that everything has a purpose. Everything passes through the hand of God. Now, 
it's kind of difficult to see how can a very difficult event in my life pass through the hand of God and actually be a benefit to me. But Joseph makes it very clear. Look, you guys think that you're the one that plotted to throw me in, that you're the cause of all of my grief. I want you to know that though it's been difficult, this has been for God's purpose and God's plan. We have lamented as we read through the prophets of the sin of the ten northern tribes. We lament of the the kings of the northern tribes that allowed their people to fall into idolatry. We lament the fact that they ignored the prophets who said that if you continue to do this, you will be sent into exile. We lament the fact that even to this day, even with all the greatest and latest of technology, we still don't know who are all the tribes doing. They found a few. They found some in China. They found some in uh, India and Ethiopia. I mean, they, they're, they're sort of, you're, you're seeing the, the beginning of this great resurrection take place. It's happening before our eyes. And we are aware of it. We're very aware of it. Most of the nations have no clue. They just think, oh, that's nice. Yeah, it, Israel's growing. But they have no idea that the prophet's words are coming true right before our very eyes. And so with that being said, as we lament all these things and we think it's so horrible, the ten northern tribes are gone, and how in the world are you ever going to identify them? Who's going to know? Are they going to come up with some great scientific test to figure it out? Will they find the great Rosetta Stone of genealogy that will, will finally tell everybody who are, who are the descendants? And you're going to find out that you know your family who came from France maybe are descendants of a certain tribe. You might find that one day. But bottom line is this. We should not lament anymore because we know that God had a purpose for it. What was the purpose? To save lives. Who were the lives that these people were to save? They were to save the people within the nations. Who do you think elevated the nations as they began to go from Assyria to the, the, to the uh, Black Sea region over to modern-day Russia and, and Switzerland and England and France and Spain and then Central America and then North America. What, who elevated the societies and world around them? It was those people who were lost descendants of the, tribe, uh, of the tribes that at a higher level of morality refused to fall to the lowest place of idolatry that existed in their culture. Even in this country, when they settled this country, did you realize they wanted to make the national language Hebrew? Right. So even at the lowest state, think about this, even at the lowest state, those who were the uh, dispersed tribes were at a higher level than those pagans that they lived with. And they themselves didn't realize they thought they had so assimilated that they could be like everybody else. Mm -hmm. But what's beautiful is this. We're living in an age right now where the prophecy of Ezekiel is starting to be fulfilled. I believe it with my whole heart. Over and over, we have quoted this verse that says, and I think Betty tells a wonderful story about telling uh, Orthodox rabbi 20 years ago that, you know, you, 
you know, the ten men from the nations come and grab the seat seat of a Jew and say, take me to Mount Zion and show me your God. And he was like, ah, don't touch me. You know, he, he thought she was going to grab his clothes or something. But the whole idea is, you know, in 20 years, think about what's, what's happened in 20 years. Think about what's happened just in five years of a shift that is taking place. I want us to turn to... Uh, Ezekiel 37. Yes. Mm-hmm. Someone read from verse 15 to 28 for me. Can you get it? Hashem came to me, saying, Now you, son of man, take for yourself one piece of wood and write upon it, for Judah and for the children of Israel, his comrades. Okay, for who? So we have a stick. Mm-hmm. Isaiah is to pick up his stick, and he's to write upon it for Judah and for the children of Israel, his, and, uh, of Israel, his companions. So just remember these Mm-hmm. What the his companions are. Go ahead. And take one piece of wood and write upon it for Joseph, the wood of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel, his comrades. Then bring them close to yourself, one to the other, like one piece of wood, and they will become united in your hand. Now when the children of your people say to you, saying, Will you not tell us what these things are to you? Say to them, Thus says the Lord Hashem Elohim, Behold, I am taking the wood of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel, his comrades, and I am placing them and him together with the wood of Judah, and I will make them into one piece of wood, and they will become one in my hand. The pieces of wood upon which you will write shall be in your hand before their eyes. Say to them, Thus says the Lord Hashem, Behold, I am taking the children of Israel from among the nations to which they've gone. I will gather them from all around, and I will bring them to their soil. I will make them into one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel, and one king will be a king for them all. They will no longer be two nations, and they will no longer be divided into two kingdoms ever again. They will no longer be contaminated with their idols and with their abhorrent things, and with all their sins. I will save them, taking them from all their dwelling places in which they sin, and I will purify them. They will be a nation to me, and I will be a God to them. My servant David will be king over them, and there will be one shepherd for all of them. They will follow my ordinances and keep my decrees and fulfill them. They will dwell on the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, within which your fathers dwelled. They and their children and their children's children will dwell upon it forever, and my servant David will be a leader for them forever. I will seal a covenant of peace with them. It will be an eternal covenant with them, and I will emplace them and increase them, and I will place my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be among them. I will be a God to them, and they will be a people to me. 
Then the nations will know that I am Hashem, who sanctifies Israel, when my sanctuary will be among them forever. Amen. Amen. Isn't that exciting? That is an amazing text to realize that when the Mashiach, when Mashiach, uh, servant of David, or servant David, Mashiach ben David, right? When he is restored or when Mashiach is brought to the throne, the nations will know that he is Hashem. Joseph says, I need Yosef. I need Yosef. The day that, that Hashem pierces through the physical space, physical world that we live, and stops Gog and Magog from its, in its, in its uh, tracks, the loud blast that you will hear, the cry that you will hear, will also be, Ani Hashem. I am God, and there is no other. The prophet says that every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that he, that Adonai, is Hashem, the great king of the universe. And when that happens, these people that have been divided will become one. They will dwell in righteousness. They will observe all of the commandments and ordinances of Hashem. Why? Because all doubt is removed. We've heard this phrase. Why didn't and why hasn't God revealed Himself completely in the world? Do you know what the statement is? We would lose our free will. Does that make sense? If God were to reveal Himself fully right now, the whole world would lose its free will. Why? Not because all of a sudden they would turn into zombie robots that would serve God. No, it's just like you, it would remove all doubt. It would remove all doubt. There's no way, you know, why does a person sin? Because they really don't believe God. Exactly. And then some people sin because they don't believe there is a God. Mm -hmm. And some people sin because, well, they believe there's a God, they believe in God, but really, did God say that? Right? So from the very beginning, this God has cloaked and hidden himself in his creation and from his creation. Does that make sense? And those who seek to know him, the souls that have been brought down to this place on the earth, if they seek him, they find him. They find Hashem in creation. They find him written in the stars. They find him in the cool breeze in a time of prayer in the field. They find Him in the study and reading of, of the Word of, of God. They find Him in relationship with other people uh, that love God as well. The day is coming. Now, I don't know if it will come in my lifetime. I don't know. Seems like a whole lot of work needs to be done in the world before that can happen. Right? But never in history have we experienced what we're experiencing right now. Never. There's no way. Listen, the great 
rabbis of our age are being inundated with people from the nations who are wanting to study Torah. They don't know how to explain it because they're not out evangelizing. You know, they're not out trying to convert people. And it has been recognized that we're living in the age in which Joseph and his brothers are getting ready to meet again. Does it make sense? Mm -hmm. The great prophet says that in that day there will be a famine in the land but a famine of the knowledge of the Word of God. We are living in that famine right now. It is amazing how the physical parallels the spiritual. We have more food in this world. You could feed everybody in this world with the food that we produce in this nation and in Europe. Yet there is people, there are people starving to death in Africa. So is it a lack of food? No, it's not a lack of food. It's a, the inability for one to get the food, right? In this modern age with computers and technology, the average person has the ability to study the ancient Torah and all of its text in ways that just 100 years ago only a select few of yeshiva students and rabbis would be able to, to study. You have at your fingertips. The average person can get on the internet a few clicks and they can discover great volumes of the truth. Rabbi Sutton asked me the other day, he held up a book that was written in 1972. He said, I don't understand why, and he told me it was a book written uh, by an Orthodox rabbi talking about um, uh, issues addressed about Jesus, the historical Jesus. And he says, why doesn't people, why don't people know this? Why don't they know this? This is obvious. It's facts. It's all there evident. Why don't they know it? How is it that the vast majority of the world can follow Muhammad and Islam and not know the facts? They actually believe that Abraham sacrificed Ishmael. Yes. And Ishmael is the promised son. Right. Why do they believe that? Because it's written in the Quran. And he was the firstborn. And he was the firstborn. Right. Yeah. Right. right. So the whole idea is what is the problem with the famine? Is notice the text when you go back and read it. It wasn't a famine of the word, it was a famine right. of the knowledge of God. A famine of the knowledge of God. We have plenty of word. We have all the Torah you need. Yeah, we're drowning in it. And, and we're drowning in it. We're drowning in knowledge right now. Mm -hmm. But what knowledge are we dying from not having is the knowledge of the Creator. With that knowledge, we are in the period in which Judah and Joseph, and Joseph representing Ephraim and the nations, Egypt, right? They, there is a, what do you call it? It's almost as if they're traveling together. We're, we haven't reached this point of the story yet, prophetically. <laughs> but they're coming. They're coming together. Mm -hmm. Something's happening. There's a famine in the land, and it's forcing us. There are questions being asked about the knowledge of God that has not been asked. It's just been assumed. We all know this. 
it's the the remarks we you know it's it's um, questions are being asked it's requiring us to realize we don't have answers for and we're having to go back to the text we're having to go back to the Torah we're having to ask the rabbis to look in places of the Torah that they've never needed to look before and to understand and to examine why because we've just not had the situation especially in the prophets especially in the prophets mm -hmm. so as last week we read Isaiah 56 I would encourage you again to read through that and read through this text because when you see Israel notice it says three or four times Israel and his companions who are the companions of Israel those people in the nations who they have intermarried in who have relationship in who've also helped to bring them out of their Egyptian life one thing I've just noticed and I've never noticed before is the word for stick is eight eight tree and tribe if I'm not mistaken is Matai right which is a branch. A branch. So he's bringing the two trees. He's bringing all the, the tribes together. Right. All the tribes. And making them tribes. one. Right. Eight Echad. Eight Echad. One tree. And that's right. beautiful. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love that. Absolutely beautiful. This concludes uh, the Torah class. Uh, for those of you who are listening online, thank you for your patience for the last couple of weeks. We've had emails from Australia and. Uh, <laughs> Uh, New Zealand and in Europe saying well, are you not posting these up anymore and I was like no not the problem we had Hanukkah and a bunch of celebrations so thank you for your patience and let's all say Shalom, shalom. shalom.